0: Well, good morning. Uh, Great to be with you again. Hey, what do you reckon the greatest threat to Christian faith is? Uh, I suspect it's going to, your answer will vary. uh, Also, certainly, depending on whether you call yourself a Christian or not. But when Christian faith wakes up in the morning, what should it be most concerned about? If we locate the source of the threat outside the church, then maybe we'd point to things like secularism, consumerism, or sexual progressivism. Or if we think, no, it's not so much outside the church that's the problem, it's it's inside the church, and so the real threat are things like false teaching, pastoral scandal, or maybe just good old-fashioned worldliness. Look, in some degree or another, I think all of those are fair and appropriate answers. I want to add another one to the list. I don't know if I'm coming out and saying it's the greatest threat, though it's certainly up there, uh, probably for some of us more than others, not least because of how subtle and deceiving it can be. Here it is, righteous living, righteous living, might even call it obedience. Uh, Now, for some of us, that might come as a surprise. Yes, we'll probably need to qualify it as we go on, but Grace City, I'm genuinely convinced that one of the greatest obstacles to your own walk with God could be your own righteousness. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, ha, that's uh, Tim, I, I don't think you know me all that well. I mean, I'm flattered, but uh, righteous living, let's just say that's not exactly my problem. I'm more in the sinful living camp. Uh, look, if that is you, um, that obviously has its own challenges, But it's also the case that often it's those who run furthest from God that are most aware of their need for Him. And so we're going to see this today, actually. Uh, We're going to learn the lesson from a woman. If you're able to recognize and and bring your brokenness and your sin to Jesus, uh, then He is more than willing to lavish His love and an affection upon you. Your sin need not get in the way of you and Jesus, if you're willing to bring it to Him. But for others of you, uh, particularly if you've grown up in the church or you know, the, tip, the typical older child or first child who tends to be good and obey the rules and work hard, then it may well be that your own righteousness is your biggest problem. Now again, that, that might be hard for some of us to hear. Maybe we pride ourselves that we've been sexually pure that we're regular in our devotions, that we're at church pretty much every week, that we may even tithe to church. And again, as good as each of those things are, and they are good, we're going to see today that sometimes our own religious devotion can actually get in the way and block us from experiencing the love and affection of Jesus, not to mention his forgiveness. And so I think today's story has something for everyone. Uh, If you see yourself as a sinner, broken and unworthy, Uh, This story has a message of hope and of healing. Uh, If you see yourself as someone who is righteous, then this story has a bit of a warning and perhaps a challenge to the way you think about and conceive of your own sin. And so my prayer is that whichever camp you're in, we might end today with all of us actually having a greater awareness and appreciation of our own sinfulness and fallenness but also a greater and a deeper love for Jesus Christ. In terms of how we're going to spend our time this morning, we're actually just going to work our way through the story. That's really all we're doing. We will do it under two headings, but they're loose headings. Uh, The first is Sinful Woman, and the second is Simon the Pharisee. So again, we're just working our way through the story under those two headings, a Sinful Woman and then Simon the Pharisee. So let's jump in. If you have a Bible, worth having it open in front of you. What's the context, though? Well, just by way of quick reminder, uh, for the last little while, Jesus has been traveling around the region of Galilee, doing preaching, doing miracles. And so he's developed a bit of a reputation, a bit of a following. The crowds love him, but he's ruffled a few feathers amongst the religious leaders. Uh, Now, they haven't completely written him off, but they're skeptical. And so, probably an accurate or you know a summary of how they're feeling towards him is one of cautious interest. And so, it's actually with some degree of surprise that we learn that one of these religious leaders, a Pharisee, has invited Jesus over for dinner. Uh, We read this in chapter seven, verse thirty-six. It says, "When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table." Now. If you've got any familiarity with the Bible, you've probably heard of Pharisees, and frankly most of what you know of the Pharisees is probably right, but I do just want to caution us against strawmanning them too much. And I say that uh, because I suspect, certainly if you've grown up in church, there's part of you that just instinctively wants to rise up and boo every time you hear the Pharisees mentioned. Right? we 're used to the Pharisees being the bad guys, and frankly in the Gospels they often are, but you 've got to appreciate certainly compared to a group like the Sadducees, the Pharisees were actually the good guys in jesus day. See the Sadducees and the pharisees they 're both groups within first century Judaism, but the Pharisees tended to be a little more sorry the Sadducees uh, tended to be a little more theologically liberal and politically active, and so Uh, The high priest and his family, they were all Sadducees. They tended to mix with the wealthy and the aristocratic class. And so the common people didn't really like them. In contrast to the Sadducees, though, the Pharisees were incredibly popular. They were the, the people scholars. They were a little more conservative and actually spent their time really hanging out in the temple and in the synagogues teaching people teaching people about the importance of pursuing a life of righteousness, and also of sort of separating themselves uh, from anything that might uh, have a worldly influence over them. In fact, the Pharisees, that word Pharisee, most likely comes from the Hebrew perashim, which means separated ones. That's who they were, they were the perashim, the separated ones. And so Luke tells us one of these separated ones, Simon, a religious leader, invites Jesus over to dinner. As we read, as Jesus is there, he's reclining at the table. Now, it's kind of worth uh, picturing this and understanding what's going on here so we can make sense of what we're about to read. You see, They're not sitting at chairs around a dining table. In those days, the custom at a feast like one of these would be all the guests would be lying on their side, sort of propped up on one elbow, head towards the table, feet stretched away from it. Another custom that's probably worth knowing about is that at a banquet like this one, you'd leave the front door open. And so, people from the community could actually walk into this person's house. Uh, They weren't really invited to sit down at the dinner, but they could stay around the edges and just observe, or just listen, or um, hear what's going on. Now, if that seems odd to you, because it certainly seems odd to me, I suspect a part of it had to do with a way of demonstrating your social status. You see, this is before the days of social media. And so, uh, Simon the Pharisee, it's not like he can take a selfie with Jesus and be like, just having dinner with close friends tonight, hashtag blessed. Uh, <laughs> instead, the door is open so that people from the community can come in and see the kind of people who's, he's having dinner with. Again, it's about social status. But as a result, word gets round. Jesus, this celebrity preacher, is having dinner at, at Simon's house. And so in verse 37, we read, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, she's literally called a woman of the city and a sinner. A woman of the city and a sinner. We don't know. We're never specifically told what she's done to earn that reputation. Uh, But most people think she's probably a prostitute. And so when she learns that Jesus is having dinner at Simon's house, she grabs some perfume and goes in search of the house. Now we're going to read uh, what she does in just a moment. But before we do, I I want to try and help us get a bit of a vision of what life would have been like for a woman like this one. See, it's easy to imagine a prostitute in those days as, you know, a bit of a femme fatale, you know, someone who was a beautiful seductress, whose powerful charms ensnared her lovers into her deadly traps. And while it's possible that she may have started that way, it's also possible and frankly probably more likely that she was sold into prostitution by her family. Well maybe she didn't have a family, Uh, maybe they died when she was young, she grew up on the streets and pretty quickly learned the way to earn a living, the way to survive was to sell sell sex. And so what we have here is both a sinner, yes, but also a sufferer. And so this woman is about as much on the margins of first century Jewish society as you could possibly get. Uh, She's on the economic margins. Uh, I read something this week that said the cost of sex in those days was about the cost of a loaf of bread. So she's cheap, she's powerless, and she's poor. Uh, She's also on the social margins. Uh, In an honor-shame culture like that one, she would have been ostracized by everyone, you know, don't associate with them. Certainly think about the Perishim, right? The Pharisees, they're telling people, don't go near someone like that. Don't contaminate yourself with them. Uh, But perhaps most importantly, she's on the spiritual margins. She knows that what she's doing is not a righteous life. She knows she's living a sinful life. And yet she's probably thinking to herself, you know, I'm going to live through what's effectively hell on earth. And that's about as good as it's going to get for me because it's going to get even worse after I die. But then one day she hears a man preaching. Now, most likely, it it wasn't in the synagogue. Uh, I doubt she would have felt comfortable entering a synagogue, but she hears him in the open air. Uh, Jesus would travel around, uh, preaching in various places. Just earlier in Luke's Gospel, um, Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain, but uh, thousands sort of gather and uh, she, she joins this group as she comes forward and she listens. And as she did, she thought, you know, we can imagine her thinking, something about this man seems different. Right? Most of the other men she's had interactions with just wanted to use her. But here is a man who was kind and compassionate. Here is a man who seemed to have a genuine love and care for the marginalized. And so he said things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are those who are hungry, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep, because they will laugh. And she thought, I'm poor, I'm hungry, and man, oh man, do I know how to weep? But then she probably also thought, well, he couldn't be talking about someone like me. could he? Surely he's talking about the righteous poor, the righteous hungry, not like me, a sinner. But then he goes on, and and as he does, he starts to talk about God as his father and how God is a God who loves his enemies. He talks about how God is merciful and how it's possible to become children of the Most High, and she thinks this all seems too good to be true. And then he tells his listeners, do not judge, or you will be judged. Do not condemn, or you will be condemned. Instead, forgive and you will be forgiven. Here is a woman who has been judged and condemned all her life. And yet here is a man telling her that freedom and forgiveness is possible. He's offering not just hope and healing, but also a way back to God. And that's what she wants. She knows she's far from God, but she wants back in. And so she hears, hears, he, he, he's having dinner at the Pharisee's house. I'm going to go. I'm going to find him. You can imagine her arriving at the house, can't you? Uh, I doubt she ever thought that she would step foot in a house like this. All she'd ever received from men like Simon was judgment, condemnation. But it's also where Jesus was. And so she takes a deep breath and she steps into the house. Luke goes on, verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet, remember, he's on his elbow, legs stretched out away from the table, he's lying down. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. What's the cause of the tears? Are they tears of sorrow and repentance? Are they tears of joy and gratitude? I suspect, honestly, it's probably a combination of both, because here, finally, is the man who' given her hope. Uh, reflecting on this, Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin, she's a Christian author. She writes this. Just have a quick drink. How do we see Jesus through this woman's eyes at this moment? We see him as the source of her forgiveness. And the object of her love. We see him as the one for whom it is worth humiliating herself before a crowd. We see him as the one for whom it's worth sacrificing both her money and her dignity. As she pours out expensive ointment on his feet and wipes them with her hair. Jesus is so far above her that she cannot abase herself enough in his presence. But through her eyes we also see Jesus as the one who stands with sinners like her. And like you and like me. Who's Jesus? He's the one who stands with sinners. And so I want to say it could be that you are here today all too aware of your own sin and maybe like the woman it's sexual, maybe it's something else. You know what it is and perhaps even like this woman Uh, All you've received from religious people, like me, like others here at church in the past, is condemnation and judgment. Maybe, like the woman, it took a whole lot of courage for you to step in the building this morning, but you knew that that's where you might meet Jesus. If that is you, then I want to encourage you to see Jesus through this woman's eyes today. He is the one who stands with sinners. And so... If you're willing to bring your sin, your brokenness to him, lay it at his feet in worship, then peace and forgiveness can be yours. Uh, Just have a quick look at how Jesus responds to the woman later on in the story. We're skipping forward a bit here. We read, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. She'd heard it was possible. Standing with the others in the crowd, they probably didn't want to get too close to her, but she'd heard it was possible. And here Jesus gives her a direct word of assurance. Your sins are forgiven. Your slate is wiped clean. You can go home with your head held high. Now, we'll see this more a little later, but it is worth just flagging her affection, uh, her pouring out the perfume, That in itself is not what saves her. Rather, that that is a demonstration of her salvation. Uh, These great acts of love are really a recognition of what Jesus has done for her. It's her faith that saves her. And we see this in verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so again, I want to say if you're here today, uh, you want forgiveness, then uh, you don't need to cause a spectacle. you want to go home forgiven, you can hold on to your perfume. It's okay. Instead, Jesus says, it's your faith that's healed you. And so if you want forgiveness, trust in Christ, because he is the one who sees you and he stands with you. And if you come to him, he will not turn you away. There's the woman. Uh, We are now going to, or just in a moment, I want to shift and think about Simon with you. Before we do that, I want to take uh, what I might call just a quick sidebar and say a few words on the place of women in the ministry of Jesus. You see, there's a particular mood, uh, certainly I hear it every now and again, that would suggest that Christianity is bad for women. Uh, You might have heard that idea as well. Uh, There's a number of things we could say on that, uh, and I'm certainly aware that uh, many women have been hurt by Christians or the church in general. But I suppose I just want to say that that was never the way of its founder. So just let me just quote for you one or two things. Uh, immediately after the passage that we're looking at, uh, and we had this read out for us before, we hear about Jesus and the women he related to. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women, who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chuza, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Right, Many women in the first century loved Jesus. Uh, he'd healed them from diseases. He'd cast spirits out of them. And so they not only followed him, they also saw it as their privilege to support his ministry. Again, that's not something they were forced to do or coerced into. Instead, it was something they saw as a privilege to do. It's also worth saying uh, that Jesus did more to elevate the status of women than any other person in human history. Again, this is a a fairly longer quote or an extensive quote. It's from Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, her book, uh, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Uh, But just have a listen to what she says. It's going to go over two slides. It says, against the norms of the empire, Jesus upheld faithful marriage as the only context for sex. This started a sexual revolution more daring than the revolution of the 1960s, but in the opposite direction. The modern sexual revolution offered women the right to commitment-free sex, a right that many men had been assuming over the centuries. But the sexual revolution that was triggered by the rise of Christianity within the Roman Empire cut out men's sexual freedom and called them to the kind of faithfulness in marriage that had previously only been expected of wives." This meant that women could no longer be seen as expendable objects of male lust. Rather, sex only belonged in marriage, the permanent, God-given, one-flesh union of a man and a woman. And Christian husbands were to love their wives with the same kind of sacrificial love that Christ has for his church. It's obvious why such a change would be good news for women who'd previously been the victims of coercive sex. So I want to say, don't believe the lie. The sexual revolution didn't set women free. I'm certain that some people feel it did, they experience it as freedom, but for many, for far too many, really what it did is take us back to a time where it was socially acceptable for men to satisfy their lust with women and then discard them. Uh, Some of you may know that from personal experience. If you do, then please just hear loud and clear. Jesus has a radically different vision of sex, of relationships, and of life in general. And it's one of freedom and forgiveness and life. And so Christianity is not bad for women. Uh, Christianity, and Jesus in particular, is good for women. Let's keep moving. We've done the woman. Uh, We're going to turn from the sinful woman to Simon the Pharisee. Before we do so, we've tried to get inside the woman's head. Uh, We are actually going to get inside the Pharisee's head in just a moment. But let's try and imagine seeing this whole experience through his eyes. Because his dinner party has just been interrupted. This random sinful woman has entered. The great conversation they were having, it was probably theological. Like, you know, he would have loved that sort of stuff. And then this woman arrives, the conversation stops, everyone turns and their attention is just on this woman at Jesus' feet and then she starts crying. And these are not gentle sobs, right? She's a red hot mess. The tears are pouring on his feet and then she undoes her hair. That's totally unacceptable in that culture. And she kneels down and she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. You can imagine the tears mixing with the dust to make it dirty. And it just gets weird and awkward because she kisses them. His dusty, calloused, crusty feet. And then she gets out a perfume, the same perfume that she would use to lure and entice her clients. She now pours on Jesus' feet. And you know what Jesus does the whole time? Nothing. Uh, He doesn't recoil in disgust. He doesn't tell her off. He just sort of lies there watching it. And it's at this point that Luke gives us a little insight into the mind of Simon. We read, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Now there's two kind of little things that that tells you about Simon. The first is he hasn't yet made up his mind about Jesus. Notice he says, If this man was a prophet. He knows that's what everyone else thinks. That's what the crowds thinks. But he's got his doubts. A prophet should have had spiritual discernment to know who this woman was, that she's a sinner. And so, therefore, secondly, if she was a sinner, then surely a prophet wouldn't mix with her. Again, remember, this is a Pharisee. He's a perishim. He's a separated one. They pride themselves in not interacting with those who would contaminate them morally. Everything about the episode seems to confirm for simon that jesus isn't a prophet but he's silent he's just thinking it but then jesus speaks up and he tells a parable and the parable confirms both that he is a prophet because he knows exactly what the woman is who the woman is but also he can see into simon's heart and it's not pretty and so he says to simon hey simon uh, i got something to tell you simon says okay go on and he tells this story. He says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. And then the question comes, now, which of them will love him more? A denarii was about a day's wages. And so even though the larger debt is actually 10 times the size of the smaller debt, the small debt, Ain't all that small, all right? It's a still a significant debt. The other thing that's important to note is that neither of them have the money to pay them back. That's important. You see, these days, if you can't pay a debt, uh, you de- kind of declare bankruptcy, but you know, it's far from pleasant. But in those days, if you can't pay a debt, you're thrown in prison. It's even harder to pay off a debt in prison, and so, good chance that you're going to stay there. And so, both of them are in a problem, both of them have an issue. But the moneylender remarkably cancels the debt of both and forgives him. and so Jesus asks the question: "All right, which loved him more?" Simon replies, perhaps begrudgingly, "Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven," and he's right. But at this point, it's just a seminar. You know, it's just a, a lesson. It's just a discussion. Uh, What happens next, Jesus takes it personally. He gets the boot out and starts to put it into Simon by contrasting his behavior with the woman's. And so he says, hey, Simon, when I came into your house tonight, you didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't kiss me on the cheek. You didn't give me oil for my head. Now scholars debate whether those things were kind of expected as common courtesy or whether they were sort of over and above things you might do for a particularly distinguished guest. My hunch is it's probably the latter, but either way, Simon doesn't do it. But then what Jesus does is contrast that with the woman who goes over and above what honor might have expected. And so if honor would expect water, she brings tears. If honor would have kissed him on the cheek, she kissed his feet. If honor would have anointed him with oil, she anoints him with perfume. In other words, this isn't honor. This is over and above honor. This is devotion. This is love. This is, this is worship. And so Jesus finishes the little parable or kind of draws the punchline in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven As her great love has shown, her love is a demonstration of her forgiveness. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Again, as we saw earlier, the the woman's over-the-top love, sorry, uh, take me back, Uh, there you go. The woman's over-the-top love is a demonstration of her forgiveness. She's had a massive debt cancelled, so she has a massive well of love in its place. But let's ask the question, what does it mean for Simon? You see, like many of the parables, this one is a little trickier the more you think into it. So it starts to raise a couple of questions for you. So, for example, it's clear that the woman is the one with the large debt. But does that mean that Simon actually only has a little debt of sin? And if that's the case, does it also mean that Simon is now forgiven? Because after all, the debt, the money lender cancels the debt of both. And if he does cancel the debt of both, what are we to make of this little phrase at the end there? "Whoever has been forgiven little loves little." Is that to suggest that Jesus sorry, Simon's lack of love for Jesus what am I doing is actually not really his fault, because he wasn't all that sinful, so didn't really experience all that much forgiveness, so maybe well, I, I suspect there's something within us that goes, that can't be right. Because it seems contrary to the whole mood of the night. Uh, you probably noticed Jesus throughout this whole thing, he never looks at Simon. Uh, he's talking to Simon, but he's got his back to him. He's looking at the woman. And what's more, Jesus never says to Simon, your sins are forgiven. He says that to the woman. And therefore, Simon is a little like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, he's left on the outside uh, whinging and failing to share in the Father's heart for sinners on the inside. And so things aren't looking good for Simon. final thing to say on this, though, is that Jesus, in his parables, he has this way of telling stories that would often assume the worldview of his opponents and yet undermine them at the same time. And so a good example of this is back in chapter 5. Uh, we saw it last year. Uh, Jesus is accused of hanging out with the riffraff. They're like, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus shoots back with his famous, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now on the surface, it sounds like the implication of that is that the Pharisees don't need him because they're righteous, but you know that's not true. Rather, the idea, is adopting their worldview and letting them know, hey guys, if, as long as you think you're healthy, you're going to miss out on the healing that I, as the doctor of souls, am able to bring. Something similar is happening here. Is Jesus suggesting that Simon had a smaller debt of sin than the woman? Well, frankly, he could be. Uh, he was a devoted follower of God, at least trying to be. She was a sinful woman. But what Simon seems totally oblivious to is that he's still got a debt. And what's more, if rather than comparing himself to the sinner, he compared himself to the Savior, he would see just how great that debt really was. Sure, it's less than hers, but he still can't pay it. And therefore, just like her, unless that debt is canceled, unless that debt is forgiven, nothing but a spiritual prison awaits him. Grace City, my concern is that some of us are a little like Simon. Our own righteousness and devotion is getting in the way of us seeing the size of our debt. Sure, there's probably plenty of people, both at this church and outside this church, with debts bigger than yours, but since when has that mattered? No amount of devotion can cancel that debt, it's still there. Maybe uh, if you find yourself lukewarm to Jesus, this might go part of the way of explaining why it is. You you don't quite see the grasp of the the size of the debt. Now, don't get me wrong, you're polite, you still invite Jesus over for dinner, if I can put it that way. Um, You still serve him, but you don't fall at his feet. Uh, You don't serve him to a point that it's costly, where you worship him. At the end of the day, why would you? you know, if your sin just isn't that big a deal, then your need for Jesus isn't that big either. But here's where I, I want to try and push us just for a moment and say, we have, to, we have to try to some degree to grasp just how significant our sin is. Uh, let, me, let me try and explain it this way. Uh, Jesus in the parable, he sort of describes or equates forgiveness as the cancellation of a debt. Now, it's not free to cancel a debt. Think it through. It's costly. Imagine you owe someone $500 and they cancel your debt. They don't just magically get $500 from somewhere else. They are now $500 down. In other words, they have paid your debt. Jesus is offering to do the same kind of thing here for the woman. When he says your sins are forgiven, it's costly. Uh, arguably, the four most costly words that Jesus ever said. Why? Why? Because he's not just going to magic her sins away. He's going to forgive them. How? He's going to pay the cost. How? Through a humiliating, self degrading, and messy display of divine love. Jesus didn't just give this woman his tears, he gave her his blood. He doesn't just kiss her feet, he allows his feet to be nailed to a cross in her place. He doesn't just pour out his perfume, he pours out his life. Grace City, the cross is what it cost Jesus to utter and mean those four words, your sins are forgiven. That's what it cost him to forgive her. And here's the thing, it's what it cost him to forgive people like you and I as well. I said, so let me beg you, stop inviting him over for dinner fall at his feet. He's not just worthy of your service, he's worthy of your love. But maybe you say, well, all right, you're telling me to love God, but how? Um, How do you grow in your love for Jesus? The answer of this parable is that you need a greater appreciation and awareness of your sin. Uh, We talked about this in my community group this week, and and there is a tension because some of us might hear, you know, you need a greater appreciation of your sin and go, ah, that's going to put me in a situation where I'm constantly, um, you know, feeling bad about myself and full of loathing and self-loathing and hatred. That's never the way it works in the Bible. Instead, Jesus wants us to have a greater appreciation of the depths of our sins so that we might have a greater appreciation of the heights of His love and therefore a corresponding love for Him. That's the way it's supposed to work. Remember Jesus said, those who have been forgiven little, love little. Uh, I'm moving towards a close here. But do you really want a Christianity like Simon's? Stuffy, cheap? judgmental, and loveless? But do you want a Christianity like the woman's? A Christianity that lets its hair down, that's costly, and that is full of love? Surely it is a ladder. If it is, though, the only way you're going to get it is if you have the courage to look in the mirror of God's Word and see yourself for just how broken, sinful, and fallen you are. Now, if you have the courage to do that, you don't need to fear. Don't fear. Instead, hear those words of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. That's what he says to all who trust in him. And so let me close uh, with one quote by Tim Keller. It won't come up on the screen. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you sent your Son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sins in a humiliating, messy display of love, which in some way was foreshadowed by this woman's. Lord, help us to see the depths of our sin, not that we might wallow in despair, but such that we might have a corresponding love for you. The one who sent his son to die for us. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.